Welcome to Gen I Pod, a podcast where we get to have conversations that inspire you. Gen I has been a collaborative effort and forms part of iIndia Education. Hello and welcome back to Gen I Pod. This is episode four of this series on getting started with presbyopia correction at the time of cataract surgery. I'm Jacqueline Belts. So far, we've covered IOL options, patient selection and optimization, and astigmatism correction and refractive targets. There's a lot to consider, especially when trifocal or EDOF IOLs that utilize diffractive technologies are planned. Corneal tomography has come up in a few of the episodes. It's a pretty important factor in terms of suitability and workup for presbyopia correcting IOLs. One controversy was brought to our attention in episode three. Most corneal specialists would agree that tomography is an essential part of the workup for presbyopia correcting IOLs. But what if you don't have tomography? Is that a total contraindication or a deal breaker when it comes to using these technologies? I agree with Ben LaHood that it's probably okay, although not my preference, to skip tomography when planning toric IOLs in many cases. I mainly think this is because torics are so important and too many patients would miss out on them if we made tomography essential. As long as primary and secondary Ks measured on other devices match up, then torics are probably okay in most instances without looking at tomography. And it's now possible to look at central topography on some biometry instruments, for example, the IOL Master 700, so that will help. Presbyopia correcting IOLs, especially diffractive ones like some EDOFs and all trifocals, are pretty unforgiving when it comes to corneal irregularities though. I've never put one in without seeing tomography first. Unless they're really obvious, like a huge Saltzman nodule or pterygium, it's pretty difficult and often impossible to detect corneal abnormalities without measuring the cornea. Definitely impossible to detect mild abnormalities that can become significant when combined with diffractive technologies, for example, subclinical keratoconus. One of the reasons why it's so important to know the status of the cornea is to consider the impact of higher order aberrations when combined with diffractive IOL technologies. It is, of course, possible, though, to measure corneal aberrations in other ways. Patients with even moderately aberrated corneas can be highly symptomatic of positive dyspotopsias, such as glare and halos after trifocal IOLs. So it's best to consider other options, such as monofocal IOLs, small aperture IOLs, or maybe even negative spherical aberration EDOFs in those cases. Should we or should we not always do tomography when we're considering trifocal IOLs? Let's see if our guest on today's podcast can answer that for us. Today, I'll be joined by Associate Professor Elaine Chong. Elaine is a cataract, cornea and refractive surgeon at Iris Surgery, Berwick Eye Centre and Doncaster Eye Centre in Melbourne. She's Director of Ophthalmology at Royal Melbourne Hospital and also works at the Eye India Hospital on the corneal unit. Prior to all of these positions, Elaine underwent double subspecialty fellowship training first in medical retina and later in cornea and refractive surgery. It was at Singapore National Eye Centre that Elaine completed her corneal training, and I love hearing about her experiences there. At the end of her ophthalmology training, Elaine was also recipient of the Gold Medal for Excellence from Ransco for her final exams. That medal is only awarded when there's a particularly outstanding candidate. It truly is a credit to Elaine's knowledge, dedication and commitment to ophthalmology and to high performance. It's a real pleasure to work alongside Elaine at the India, to see her excel in so many leadership positions and to have her involved in teaching our trainees. It's also not lost on me that she's a wife and a mum as well. I'm sure you'll enjoy her lessons on corneal tomography. Let's get into it. 
Hi, Elaine. Thanks so much for joining me. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks, Jackie, for the invite. Oh, my pleasure. Um, before we get into corneal tomography, could you tell us a bit about yourself, both in and out of work? Um, well, I'm a head of department at the Royal Melbourne Hospital, and at the moment, I'm very busy just trying to handle the COVID outbreak that's happening there. But uh, thankfully, I have two little girls outside of work that's they are keeping me sane and very occupied. And I play badminton on the side as well. So, but unfortunately, we can't do that at the moment. Amazing. I know it's so, it must be so stressful at Royal Melbourne at the moment with that outbreak and being head of department and trying to control that and keep all the patients seen as well as homeschooling your two girls. Um, yes, the homeschooling really, is a bit of a challenge as well, yes. Yeah, it's so difficult, isn't it? Um, well, we'd better get into it before you have to go and do something else. So corneal tomography, super important to discuss in terms of preoperative workup for cataract surgery, especially when presbyopia corrections planned. But firstly, what is tomography and how is it different to topography? Well, corneal topography is essentially a non-contact imaging technique that kind of maps out and sh maps out the shape and features of the cornea surface. And so it's only an anterior kind of anterior surface evaluation. Whereas corneal tomography, uh, it evaluates the whole cornea. So you have information from both the anterior and posterior cornea surfaces. So the way I remember it is tomography as in M-O-R-E, tomography. So there's more information with tomography than topography. Huh, I've never thought about that. That's a great way to remember it. Uh, and how does tomography work? So let's go back to the topography. So usually, so I guess what's the difference between uh, tomography and the usual topography? So with um, topography, usually what happens is that you have a placido disc, which is essentially uh, circular rings spaced equally apart, and that's reflected under the cornea surface. And basically, the software uses an algorithm to analyze the reflection back into itself. So the closer the spacing of the uh, rings together, it means that that area is steeper than the other parts. Okay, so that's the difference between a placido uh, anterior surface examination uh, versus a tomographer, which actually evaluates both the entire cornea, the, both the anterior and the posterior surface. So typically what we use is slit beams of light, but the difference between just using slit beam and shine flu, which is uh, what most of the modern tomographers um, use, shine flu is basically a principle where the uh, lens of the um, uh, tomographer is at a is at a plane that's equidistant to what you're measuring. So it's a principle, it's kind of a optics principle. So essentially you have this rotating camera that basically rotates around the central uh, middle of the cornea and it takes multiple, multiple uh, images. And based on the calculation, they can actually map out the entire cornea. Thanks, Elaine, that's a good description. Um, why would you want to see tomography in terms of workup for cataract surgery, even if we have accurate Ks from other machines? such as IOL master or manual keratometry, for example, why would you still want to see tomography? So for IOL master case, um, they map out an area of about 2.5 millimetres or 3 millimetres. And even for the manual case, that's the kind of small area that um, you actually work out of. But with tomography, you have 
a lot more data. So you have the peripheral cornea, you have the posterior curvature, you have the total cornea power, you know where the thinnest point is, you can assess whether there's any ectasia, you've got a lot of other values such as the RMS, RMS values and the court U. So there's a lot of uh, processing power within a tomographer that gives you a lot of additional uh, information, especially if you're going to use uh, a press biopic correcting IOLs. Yeah, thanks. We'll, we'll get to that shortly. Um, now, you use Pentacam, is that right? Yes. So do I, and so does the Ioneer. But um, what other types of corneal tomographers are available? There's quite a lot of corneal to tomographers. Um, uh, well, let, let's split it up into different types of imaging devices. So there's actually the placental disc kind of uh, topographers. So there's an anterior surface only. And there's also different types of slit scanning, um, but not shine flu, to tomographers with placido disc built in. So that's the op scan. And then you have the shine flu, which is the different type of imaging optic software using slit, slit beams as well. And that includes uh, the Pentacam, the Galilei, and the Cirrus. And also you have the fourth type, which is uh, OCT-based uh, tomographer, where basically nowadays you have the swept source OCT. So Right now, it's not mainstream, but I think this is, you know, going to be the the device of the future because they have uh, extremely precise imaging with swept source OCT. It's a matter of speed and and also the background uh, processing power and all the algorithms and regression analysis that comes with the software. That's important with the device. That's important. Yeah, it is important. Thanks for bringing up OCT based, um, and that brings into play some of your retina knowledge about Schweppes source OCT, right? Yes, yes. Very exciting times. Yeah. Now, corneal assessment has already come up in some of the other earlier episodes for this podcast, and it might be more controversial than I originally thought, um, as we hear arguments both ways about whether it should or shouldn't be considered an essential part of preoperative workup for cataract surgery, especially if we're using presbyopia correction, as you mentioned, um, diffractive technologies like trifocals or EDOFs. What's your opinion? Is it essential to measure the cornea before using these lenses? Um, I would say absolutely. <laughs> That's because, I mean, in a recent paper that uh, we published, uh, one, in, one in 84 young adults in the RAIN study in Western Australia had keratoconus. So, you know, um, and in a recent white paper that Jackie, I think you were involved with, about 20% of adults have unusual corneas. So to be forewarned is forearmed to tackle any issues. So you want to have predictable results. And so if you can do the tomography beforehand, um, that is very important, especially if you're going to use the premium intraocular lenses where patients expect a lot. Yes. And you kind of have to deliver. So what you're getting at is not putting them in the wrong patient, right? Exactly. In the wrong eye. Exactly. Um, so coming back to Pentacam, there's a lot of options in terms of which maps to include, but in as little or as much detail as you like, which maps make up your standard Pentacam map that you would look at prior to cataract surgery? Um, yeah, I have uh, in my practice, I have a set 
a few maps that automatically prints the PDF so they attaches to the patient files. Uh, but the first thing to actually look at is the QS, which is the quality specification, whether it's basically you can look at it as whether it's red, yellow, or normal. So you, you need to make sure that it's a good quality scan, first of all. And then the other maps I typically use is the refractive maps, the uh, cataract pre-op um, maps, and, as, and, and, and the uh, holiday report as well. But usually the refractive map and the cataract pre-op maps. Yeah, right. And what are the important things to notice on those maps? Basically, you're looking for anything unusual in the cornea, such as ectasia or any irregular astigmatism, any you know um, dry eyes where there's like patchy patchy um, appearance on the um, refractive maps, and also uh, caught you, which is the angle kappa, which is the distance, um, basically the distance between the visual axis and the pupil center, as well as higher order aberrations with the root mean square or RMS values. Yeah, great. So let's get into some of that. Um, in terms of your sort of overall impression that you mentioned, what conditions are you trying to diagnose or exclude on your um, corneal tomography that you might have missed at, say, slit lamp examination? Once you're used to reading the pentacams, when you look at the map, the, the colour and graphical representation tells you a lot of stuff. So after looking at the quality QS, which is the quality of the scans, you look at the overall impression, whether the cornea is regular and whether there's any signs of disease. So what sort of conditions we're trying to diagnose would include any cornea ectasia, such as keratoconus, a pellucid marginal degeneration, any surface scarring, salesman degeneration, uh, previous pterygium surgery or pterygium itself, dry eyes, um, uh, and also you know previous refractive surgery, especially if the patient had con forgotten about so that's all very important stuff to look for. Yeah, thanks. And you mentioned regularity. How how would you define an irregular cornea? An irregular cornea, so I guess it's easier to describe what a regular cornea looks like. So usually with a regular cornea, you have very nice um, refractive maps where the uh, steepest area is in the middle of the cornea and also the uh, ang the axis of the um, astigmatism is 90 degrees to each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the posterior float is normal. So that's, if, so if a, if a cornea does not look like that, and say for example, the very high posterior float and the steepest area is localized inferiorly, um, then this is the irregular cornea. Yeah, thanks. And you mentioned the posterior float there. Do you use the Bell and Ambrosio map to compare that to the anterior float? Uh, you mean the Bell and Ambrosio uh, display? Yeah. Yes, yes, I do that. Yeah, so would you normally do that map prior to cataract surgery? And what do you look at on the map? I always do all the, the pentacam prior to cataract surgery before I actually see the patient. So what I look for in the BAD, which is the Berlin and Brazil display, is um, the various values. So there's various values that add up to a regression analysis where you have the final D, um, D number. And so if you look at the display, it's right at the bottom corner. And if it turns red, it is most likely that the person has corneactasia. So essentially what it helps is it just a very good screening tool to see say pre-refractive surgery or anything whether there's any evidence of corneoactasia so that's what I use it for as a good screening tool really 
Yeah, so back to the white is fine, yes. red's not okay, and yellow's in between. Yes. Right? So I presume you would not implant a patient with corneal ectasia with presbyopia correcting IOLs, even if the condition's subclinical, is that right? Yes, that, that's because, so I would not be implanting a presbyopic correcting IOL in these patients, mainly because there's often a lot of higher order aberrations in these um, corneas. And so it's going to really deteriorate the image quality if you insert such lenses. Yeah, thanks. So you mentioned higher order aberrations. And um, is one of the maps that you look at the Zernike analysis? I don't particularly look specifically at the Zaniki analysis, but it does give us a lot more information. So, but one of the main things in, in that um, Zaniki analysis is the uh, root mean, RMS values, or root mean square values. But um, a lot of the other um, displays, such as the cataract, pre-op cataracts um, display, as well as the holiday report, also has the RMS values. So I do look at the RMS values, but not specifically in the Zaniki analysis display mode. Elaine, can you just explain what are higher-order aberrations and what that RMS value means? So higher-order aberrations are basically um, aberrations that cannot be corrected by glasses uh, itself. So basically lower-order aberrations are sphere and sill, which you can correct by glasses, and higher order aberrations are not correctable, which is why if you insert an intraocular lens, that lens will not correct the higher order aberration. And with a higher order aberration, the image quality will not be quite as good. So an example of higher order aberration is like coma or trifold. So these are just the way that the light enters the eye in in an unusual way. So it doesn't focus quite so well. Yeah, so even more important to know about them before presbyopia correcting lenses than regular monofocal IOLs, right? That's right. And that number, the total root mean square, um, do you have a cutoff that you above which you would not implant a presbyopia correcting IOL? Yeah, so the RMS value above uh, 0.4 micrometers, so above 0.4 I would not insert any yeah. press biopic correcting IOLs or diffractive lenses. That's the same number that I use. And I know that some use 0.5, um, but it tends to not hurt to be on the conservative side. But it, it is worth pointing out that that's at four millimetres, right? So yes. whatever device you are using to measure, you need to make sure that that's at four millimetres. Otherwise, the numbers can vary a lot. For example, if you have it set to six millimetres, you know, most corneas would read above 0.4. Yes, so uh, if you go to the holiday report as well as the pre-op cataract scans, there's a little trick to that. You can actually look at the 4mm part and there's a little yellow tab if you're on the Oculus software. If you click on it, it actually explains and tells you specifically what the number is in case you forget what is normal and what's not. So that's often a good way to, um, if you forget the actual number, to click on a yellow triangle. Yeah, it's really worth getting to know your machine, isn't it? Because there's a lot of information in there that we might not realise if we're just looking at the PDF. Yeah, I think it's really important to play with the um, uh, Oculus software. So in my rooms, I have my the Oculus software in my computer, in my consulting room. So instead of just looking at the PDF, um, I um, I actually click on and can I'm able to just configure the various kind of layouts that I want to look at specific for that patient. So 
Elaine, there's a bit of a pitch that EDOF's extended depth of focus eye wells might be a little more forgiving. Is that true? Do you think that glare and halos are less common with diffractive EDOFs than with diffractive trifocals? The problem with the diffractive extended depth of focus lenses is the rings. So because they still have the concentric rings around the center, um, they still get glare and halos. So apart from the fact that um, they don't read quite as well as trifocals, I don't think they are a lot more forgiving because they still get all these aberrations with glare and halos. And some even, um, you know, report a little bit of waxy vision as well. Yeah, so it sounds to me that if the patient's suitable, you just go straight for a trifocal, is that right? Yes, and if they're not suitable, monovision is often quite a good op option. Yeah, I like monovision too. Do you use any of the recent generation EDOFs, perhaps Vivity by Alcon or Ihance by J&J? &J? Yes, um, so the newer generation of EDOFs um, basically do not have the concentric rings. So I've started to use Vivity and this is these uh, lenses have only just been introduced. So I only have a handful of patients um, uh, with Vivity lenses. So far, my patients have been quite happy with the lens. But I think um, like with any new uh, lens or new technology, we need to basically um, monitor our outcomes a little bit closer. Yeah, I would agree with that, especially because we've only just got the low toric power for Vividi and torics just come out for iHance. So none of us have a real lot of experience with them yet. But do you think or are you expecting these IOLs to be more forgiving in terms of corneal aberration? Um, the answer is yes, only after the lower toric um, versions of the these lenses have come out. So I've only started using them when the lower toric versions are have been released because I feel that you know correcting your sphere and your astigmatism is by far the most important part, followed by um, the range of the lenses because you really want to be on target if you want to use these lenses. Um, with the Vivity and Ihans, because they don't have these concentric rings, so because of that, I do think that um, these lenses would be a lot more forgiving in terms of um, glare and halos. Yeah, I hope so too. And it's one of the things I'm really looking forward to about getting back to live conference is to be able to discuss these with colleagues and find out the data of relating to which patients really are and are not suitable for those lenses, but they should be more forgiving. So I haven't been inserting these lenses in, uh, well, what you call abnormal cornea. So these have been, I've been inserting them in um, patients with a normal eye, so to speak. Mm. Um, but maybe being a bit more flexible in terms of, say, dry eye or um, that sort of thing, would you say? Yeah, probably. Yes. Elaine, I think you mentioned that you do the Pendicam or you have the Pendicam done before you see the patient. Is that right? Or do you do it later on after you've consented the patient when they come back for biometry? Usually if a patient is interested in cataract surgery, I do an A scan as well as Pentacam and OCT before they see me. Just because I prefer to understand what the patient is suitable for or not suitable for before I start discussing the various lens options with them. 
especially if um, you have a patient who really wanted a trifocal and you tell them all about the trifocal and they end up having, say, an epirational membrane with uh, cornea ectasia and they're not suitable. So that kind of uh, puts a downer, for, um, is a downer for the patient. So I'd rather do it all beforehand before I see the patient. Yeah, that's a good argument. It's a bit of a letdown, isn't it, when um, they get their heart set on something and then you have to tell them later that they're not suitable. Yes. Um, but it does take a long time. So does your team do all those measurements on the day or do you have a separate appointment for those measurements? Um, I usually do it on the same day, so before they're dilated, before before um, any drops are put in the eyes. Yeah. And yeah, if right. if, for example, they see me for a different reason, then when I see them uh, for the following visit, then it's flagged as a cataract patient. And so there'll be time allocated for all the scans. Yeah, and they'll do it on arrival yes. prior to dilation. Yeah, that sounds good. Um, do you have any resource recommendations for learning about Pendican? Because it is complicated and I would usually go to the manual that comes with the machine or, or at least the online version of that, but it's fairly cumbersome. I also try to go to lectures and updates. Um, for example, when Dr. Berlin came out with the ABCD map for progression of keratoconus, um, you know, that's how I learned about it at conference and listening to him. But they can be pretty hard to follow. Um, how did you learn to read a pentacam? Yeah, reading a pentagram can be quite challenging. I mean, initially when you start reading, usually it's the refractive maps. You go to clinic and talk to the consultants about it. But as your knowledge gets a little bit more advanced, I agree with you. Um, attending lectures and updates are very important. The manual is very didactic. So maybe that's good for like learning how to import certain kind of um, uh, PDFs into the patient notes. But otherwise, most of the time, you know, Pentacam actually has a lot of very good um, pot, well, not podcasts, but little lecture series, series where they invite like... Um, Ber uh, Berlin, uh, Ambrosio, Holiday to give talks and explain their algorithms a little bit better. So I actually find those um, videos very helpful because, you know, you kind of need to have a have a screen on, actually see where the displays are and what the displays mean and with somebody explaining that at the same time. Oh, that's a good tip. Thanks, Elaine. And thanks so much for taking time out of your day today to discuss this with me. For Gen iPod, I've really enjoyed it. Definitely learned a few things. Have a great day and I'll see you back at the Eye and Ear. Thank you so much, Jackie. Please subscribe to this podcast so that we can continue to deliver episodes to you that hopefully are interesting and inspiring. Also, if you have time, please check out our website, geni.org.au.